Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the we can say anything we want because you won't believe a word of it anyways edition. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, I speak with Joe Weisenthal, editor of Bloomberg Markets and the writer of a fascinating article explaining how the language of Donald Trump and the proliferation of fake news actually fit into a broader, longer-term trend. Joining me in the FT's New York offices is Joe Weisenthal. Joe, how are you? Cardiff, thanks for having me. I'm great. Uh, So you now are the anchor of a TV show and you edit a proper site online, but I still like referring to you as a, an ex-blogger. I feel like that mentality, that blogging mentality still informs everything you do. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I, I feel like I'm always a blogger. In fact, I really aspire to one day get back into just pure blogging. One day, just like josephweisendahl.com, just sitting there writing 12 posts a day on whatever is in the so news. You won't be an erstwhile blogger anymore. You'll just be a blogger who yeah. does a bunch of other things too. Cuz like to me like when I don't know like when we started out in blogging years ago there was this certain like triumphalist view it's like this is the future of all media this is the correct form and then of course it got subsumed in various ways you still blog but I don't really yes. <laughs> but I, I I still actually believe that that like ultimately like the blog is the ultimate sort of form of media and I want to get back there one day yeah I, I bring it up for a, a specific reason too which is that when you spend a lot of time blogging <clears throat> you also spend a lot of time thinking about different ways of communicating and when we first started out we had to think about how that medium would evolve away from the traditional forms of media. And this is what your recent piece is about, right? So here's the title of the piece, Donald Trump, the first president of our post-literate age, all right? And the piece opens up with a summary of why journalists and other people also are so worried about fake news and about how quickly it spreads throughout social media. Uh, And you start quite bravely, I think, with a quote from Marshall McLuhan. Uh, the medium is the message. Tell us about the trend and the importance of McLuhan. Well, I do think it's really interesting that out of nowhere, it seems like in the last, really just since the election or like the week before the election, there's just been this surge in interest about fake stories. And I don't think anyone quite knows what that means, fake news. Like some of it is just pure fabrication, something that looks by all appearances like a news article saying something happened that just didn't happen. And then some is sort of more like conspiratorially minded stuff. Some is probably real news that is just sort of slanted in such an extreme way that people don't consider it to be valid. But the overall angst is just this idea that in sort of the world of social media and, you know, sort of the successors to blogs that sort of like anyone can make a site and anyone can say anything they want and anyone can distribute it for free on Facebook and that it looks like something that is legitimate. And this is understandably, I would say, a major source of concern for legitimate journalists. It is. And then you transition after uh, the paragraph about Marshall McLuhan 
into the work of one of his acolytes. Uh, oh, yeah. Tell us about him and uh, and the importance of his uh, most important book. So first of all, McLuhan. So I tried reading one of his books. Uh, he said the medium is the message, and I tried reading his sort of like cult book, The Gutenberg Galaxy, this summer. And I'm just going to say that I didn't under like I didn't get it. He writes in this really weird style, and I'm not really like I'm a kind of linear thinker. And he writes in this. He calls it a mosaic style where he just sort of like puts a bunch of tiles together. Yeah, discursive. And by the way, yeah. the medium is the message when you hear it by itself doesn't really mean anything. Right. You know? And I didn't totally get the book. I'm just being completely <laughs> out. No, I didn't. In fact, I gave up like 100 pages in because okay. I was like, I don't get it. That being said, some of his accolades write in a more linear, sort of scrutable manner. And uh, one of his students was actually this Jesuit priest. Uh, his name is Walter Ong, and he was a professor at uh, St. Louis University where McLuhan taught for a long time. And he wrote this amazing book called Orality and Literacy, Technologizing the World. And the basic gist is that when mankind invented the written word, it was not merely as an extension of spoken word that it actually fundamentally changed human thought. And the easiest way to conceive of why the written word would have the impact of changing thought and fundamentally different is that in the uh, oral world, or what Ong called the world of primary orality, there's no way to look anything up. There's no text to reference. There's no database of uh, what societal knowledge is. And that places very specific demands on communication. So communication has to be memorable because if it's not memorized, then it just – if knowledge isn't memorized – Nothing is stored. Nothing is stored. This conversation that you and I are having, like back then, nobody would hear it. You and I wouldn't remember it except based on what was actually impressionable. Right. And so you really – there's a high pressure on the communicator to make something impressionable. And you think about what that means. So – communicating in rhyme, for example. So think of like the lessons contained in the ancient epic uh, oral poems. The Odyssey is one. It's poetry, and it's poetry for a reason because poetry is more memorable. In fact, I think people, uh, scholars think that the Odyssey was probably sung. Songs are more memorable than poems. Is you know, It's very easy to recall song lyrics, even if they're the same length as uh, poems oftentimes. Repetition is another technique. That would be, you know, if we were having this conversation, I would just keep repeating the same thing over and over again, hammered into you, stuff like that. And in reading the book, it occurred to me that there are a lot of sort of similar demands with the age of social media, that the way we communicate online, some of how we're pressured to communicate creates some similar effects. It's, you know, complicated ideas that you sort of have to go and pour back over. That's not how you tweet or, you know, those, those aren't the tweets or Facebook posts that go viral. What goes viral is a simple, clear message. Sometimes a, a hashtag can be incredibly powerful for making an idea spread. And so I feel like um, often our current age of media, um, in a way, feels like and has some of the same sort of uh, pressures as the age of uh, primary orality. Right. I want to quote Evan Spiegel here. You included this quote in the story. He says, people wonder why their daughter is taking 10,000 photos a day. What they don't realize is that she isn't preserving images. She's talking. When I read that quote in the Wall Street Journal this summer about Snapchat and what the old people don't get about Snapchat, I thought that was, I just nailed it because 
you know, I didn't get it. I still don't really I occasionally use Snapchat, but I don't really like feel natural on it. But if you think about it as talking, it makes a lot of sense. Like no one, like I might say, why, why take all these photos and you're not even saving them? To which a younger person than me would say, like, well, why do you why do you talk on the phone without recording your conversation? Which is, oh yeah, totally. Like that seems bizarre. Like you know, thinking about it that way, we talk all the time. Without- why do you link to something in 140 characters? Right. If you're not planning to go back and read the whole thing. Right. Exactly. It's the interaction and the expression rather than some preservation of the end thing itself. And I think that quote really drives home that what we call social media is the sort of broad world of posting things and commenting on things is not really the same as sort of the literate mindset where you sort of think about reading some authoritative document, but more like the oral world. And he said, exactly, the person using Snapchat isn't taking photos, they're talking. Right. You cite three different examples of the ways in which speech can differ in this oral world versus the written world. I want to go through each one of these now. Here's a quote from your piece. You write, in the oral world, thoughts and expressions were, in Ong's words, aggregative, not analytic. Sounds like it helps if the language is visual, if the language is descriptive, and if the language is very simple. Well, you know, one of the famous uh, descriptions in the Odyssey, the wine dark sea, uh, Homer's description of the water, and it's used like 18 times in the book. So why do you keep hammering that phrase? And it sort of a it makes it memorable. It conveys this image association of like permanence with the thing itself. It's sort of this packet of information that sort of comes together and savable. And you know we had this election, and we had a candidate who also spoke very empathetically. Obviously, Lion Ted, Little Marco, the failing New York Times, Crooked okay, Hillary. Hillary, yeah, who is also you know it's sort of weird to think of Trump as sort of the uh, Homerian poet of this election. But I think it's these things really stuck. I mean, at the beginning, like. Trump calling Marco Rubio little Marco kind of seemed, you know, sort of funny. But then think about like how well that whole crooked Hillary line essentially defined the entire election. And it really is the same idea. It's just so simple. It's so memorable. It's so instantly shareable. You saw like Trump's acolytes use crooked Hillary in their own tweets. And it has the effect of in a very small amount of space really sort of conveying and packing in a lot of information. Right. And in Trump's speech, you also included uh, the next two examples, uh, actually. One is redundancy. You repeat something over and over and over again. And in the analytical world, if you were to see that on the page, it would look kind of ridiculous. Why does this person keep repeating himself? (laughs) I can just read it, okay? And I read it the one time, and that's it. I can go back to it. I can see it. The second thing is that a lot of this is about verbal jousting, which is obviously something that's instantly memorable as well. And in the oral world, these things do seem to work. Right. I mean, you even like imagine yourself in a bar with friends. Ong talked about this. Imagine yourself in like an outdoor market somewhere haggling. When people are around each other in the flesh, they want to one up each other. They want to show they're wittier than the other, you know, sort of. Text and books have the effect of sort of divorcing the author from the text itself, and so the text is supposed to stand on your own. You're supposed to judge a text on its own arguments, not what you think about the author. In the flesh world, in the life world, and which is what all communication was back in the uh, the primary oral world, it was all one-to-one, and everyone wants to one-up each other and joust and show they're the wittier one and the funnier one and maybe put someone else down 
And again, Trump is was the master of the uh, the put down and the jab. I mean, this idea that language has become more combative and competition. I mean, this was incredibly uh, well suited for him. I think it only dawned on people over time that Trump was kind of playing a different game yeah. um, from the one that we all sort of understood before, especially after eight years of Obama, who is himself a very analytic thinker, a very right. wonky thinker. And he has other strengths when it comes to public speaking, but he's very different in manner than Donald Trump. But I want to I give you an example where it seems like a lot of people either have forgotten that lesson already or mm. didn't learn it in the first place. There was an article in New York Mag yesterday by Jonathan Chait essentially mocking Mike Pence, who is Trump's vice presidential pick, because Pence has 12 times used the phrase Donald Trump's broad-shouldered mm. foreign policy. I hadn't right? even thought about like his own epithetical characterization I, of Trump. I, I think he might have been learning it from Trump, right. uh, who obviously is, is more practiced at this. But if you think about it, if you see somebody use broad-shouldered again and again and you see it listed – the way it is in that article, it looks kind of ridiculous. Like he keeps saying right, this, right. just because you say it doesn't mean it's so. And yet that's not how people process no. information in the world that you're describing, the oral world, because broad-shouldered is a visual image. It is something that's unexpected. You wouldn't normally expect people to be talking about something geeky like foreign policy in terms of how broad your shoulders are. And yet it kind of is memorable. Like it sticks out. Yeah. A bit. You know, on Twitter throughout the campaign season, numerous times journalists would share snippets of Donald Trump's speeches. And they did often look completely ridiculous. But it's silly. I mean, he wasn't writing policy papers. It was talking. And so if you're reading talking and you're judging talking based on how it reads, of course it's going to look absurd. But that wasn't what Donald Trump was doing. And people at his rallies, including many people who did not like Donald Trump, say, watching on TV, thought that his speeches were quite uh, magnetic. And one of my favorite examples, and I use it in the column, was he was talking about leadership I think his quote was like, I'm a leader. I'm a leader. I've always been a leader. What I do is lead. You tell people what to do, and that's leadership, something like that. So he said like the word lead or some variant of it like five times in five sentences. I mean, it just – it reads ridiculous, but then it works, and he just like hammered it home. And in the oral world, that's what you got to do. Let me tell you about something I've been struggling with, uh, and it's going to sound tangential at first. But trust me, uh, it relates relates to what you're you're (laughs) writing about here. After the election, I suspect that I and a lot of other journalists were struggling to reconcile two different worlds in their heads, right? And here's what I mean. In one world, facts and reason and accumulated knowledge Mm. and wisdom all matter. In other words, enlightenment values, right? Right. And these in some ways are the assumptions on which we base our entire profession. But actually, if you think about it, those are also assumptions that matter for anybody who traffics a lot in information. So almost all white-collar work, uh, but especially information that exists only in the digital realm or in your head, Mm -hmm. right? That's one world where these values matter, right? In another world, tens of millions of people vote for a candidate who ran a campaign for the presidency entirely as id, right? Yeah entirely based on an identity play, an identity appeal. And that, I think, can be confounding because we want to believe that we live in the first world, but it actually might be the case that we live in the second world where the only things that matter 
are either perceived truths or appeals to a, a kind of emotional truth that itself is divorced from substantive factual truth. And we're all kind of struggling to see whether or not we were wrong about the world we live in or whether or not we have to completely reassess how to reconcile those two worlds. No, I I think this is spot on. And I think this gets to some of the really deep angst about, so going back to the fake news, because a lot of it, the conversation is like, oh, what should Facebook do about fake news? And should they have some sort of warning and stuff like that. But the deeper question is like not really a technical question. There's no sort of like clear technological answer, which is that these sort of, as you put it, the identity play, the id is what moves a lot of people and there's no fact checking. You you can't fact check it. You know, you go back, you say Hillary Clinton is a crook. You say Donald Trump says that or crooked Hillary. And you see the sort of fact checkers of the world is like, well, actually, she wasn't really involved in this decision to grant this thing. And she wasn't. And it's like, that's not really, you know, it's a meme. It's like, you, how do you fact check a meme? It's, it took root in people's head. And it's not obvious that any sort of like rundown of what we call facts have any bearing for much of the world. Yeah. And I should say, by the way, that I make that earlier point about the two worlds, completely regardless of how you feel about Trump's politics or what you perceive to be Trump's politics, right? You might be voting for Donald Trump because you interpret him as being the better candidate for what it is that you want him to do, right? But even I think most Trump voters, if you just showed them a list of things that he said and then you showed them the fact check, would probably agree with you and say, no, no, he does lie a lot. They just don't care, right? Partly because uh, they think there's a higher truth to what he's saying. There's a a higher element to it. And I think journalists, but like a lot of other people too, just struggle with understanding that even though we know, for instance, that – psychology is complicated, that there are cognitive biases out there that exist, that they can often be very powerful. And yet we still want to believe that ultimately the big decisions we make and voting for president is a pretty big one are grounded in some kind of reality or at least progress towards reality. No, I think you're right. I think the view of Trump is that even when he lies, he's speaking to a deeper truth. The things we all know to be true, the sort of, you know, there's this sort of like, um, there was a debate on the right. Is like, is Trump really a conservative? And I think that you could certainly answer the question, yes. I mean, you could also answer it, no. But <laughs> I think there's certainly a sense he's conservative in which he attempts to speak to like the deep, odd truths that we all – sort of like that everyone sort of knows in their gut to be true, even if – I'm not saying I necessarily agree with those. I'm saying that that's like is the sort of like appeal – to a lot of his uh, supporters, this idea that it's like, yeah, he lies about this, but everyone sort of lies. But at root, there's something he corrective. Yeah. In some sense. Right. Let me ask you this. He tells it uh, like it is. Right. Let me ask you this. A campaign is about just getting the vote. It's right. just about convincing somebody to pull the lever for you. Metaphorically, right. I guess we don't really use levers that much anymore. We used to in New York. <laughs> Those were more fun. <laughs> right, they were. But it's just about persuading somebody to vote for you. Once he's the president, things change a little bit. There will be actual decisions that he has to make, and right. there will be actual outcomes to those decisions. And so when you think about your role as the editor of a site and as the host of a show, and in terms of covering Donald Trump, uh, how do you sort of separate those two things? In other words, how do you separate the very real impact 
that his persuasive tactics have on yeah. people in terms of changing public opinion versus the things that he actually will do and the wisdom of his doing them. I think it sort of requires on all journalists a certain amount of humility and a certain amount of define, defining what you're trying to accomplish with what you're writing. So, you know, I write a lot about markets and economics or edit a lot of stuff. And, you know, I think there's a certain element of just sort of doing it the same way we always have and not letting Donald Trump's uh, unique nature change what's going on in markets and change what's going on with the economic data and stuff like that. I also think there is certainly a role for people to really uh, scrutinize the effect of his language, the effect of his tactics, how he tweets, how he gets around media by using his social media. conflicts of interest, things of that nature. Yeah, so I think that the answer, and I, you know, obviously people are going to be wrestling with this a lot because everything else aside, he's clearly going to use tactics for communication that other presidents haven't used, such as getting around the media, using social media and stuff like that. I think the answer is to just sort of be humble, by which I mean sort of focus on one thing. Whatever it is that you're paying attention to, to the best of your ability, sort of report it as true. And if it's the, if it's economic data and how Trump's policies affect that, then just focus on that. And if it's what the stock market and bond market do in regards to Trump's policies, do that. And if it's about how the perception of the economy changes, because that's certainly a story, the fact that we've had this huge recovery, but a lot of people don't believe it. And they think the economy is really bad or they think that it's all part-time jobs, whatever. And I think that also is an interesting story. I am curious, you know, in the next four years, there's probably a pretty good chance we'll have some sort of recession just because we're, you know, it's been a long time since we've had one. Whether Trump can sort of convince people we're not in a recession in the same way that Obama couldn't really convince people that we ever got out of the recession. People never really felt the economy was you know, bouncing back. Whether uh, Trump will be able to accomplish uh, the opposite when the downturn inevitably hits. I mean, something we're thinking about here, too, is that people might uh, have voted for Trump because they believed some of his promises. If things go badly, and to use an exaggerated example, if you're out of a job and you're starving, it's going to be a lot harder for him to convince you that he's a swell guy. On the other hand, he's also quite a master of distraction. Right. right. He might redirect or that frustration or scapegoating. He might redirect that frustration towards something else. And I'm actually quite worried about what that something else would be. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, we don't need to get too, like, sort of, like, eco in this conversation. <laughs> but I do think that the potential for a hyper-politicization of the Fed is a huge potential story in the next few years. If, say, the perception is that the Fed didn't hike rates for the most part during all these Obama years and then begins a more normal-looking hiking cycle as soon as a Republican comes to office, just because that's where they are and what the data is telling them, I think there are some potential for real big uh, blow-ups. I think the first time he tweets about a Fed decision could be a uh, very interesting moment in the market. So. Let me switch to an article written by Dan Dresner, mm. a former guest on this show, professor of international relations. Dresner wrote a piece uh, in which he said that technocrats, like wonky, meritocratic technocrats, essentially face a Sophie's choice for the next four years. On the one hand, they love their country, so they want a Donald Trump presidency right. to be a prosperous one, to be a peaceful one, right. to be one that works out great for everybody or as much as possible, right? Right. 
On the other hand, they also very much believe in the value of expertise. Mm. They believe in the value of a professional meritocracy. And Trump has hired some talented people, but oftentimes they are talented not at the thing in which they're supposed to specialize in. So he has named Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, to be his next ambassador to the UN, even though she has no diplomatic experience. She just named Ben Carson former Very neurosurgeon, talented, talented guy, to be his uh, next head of housing and urban development, also an area in which he has no expertise. And so the dilemma that technocrats have now is that if Donald Trump turns out to be a successful president, then it turns out that, again, one of their fundamental assumptions all along was wrong. In other words, the value of what they do right. was severely uh, exaggerated at best and possibly worthless at worst, right? Yeah. And then on the other hand, uh, if he is a bad president, right, because all of these uh, non-experts failed at what they do, then it sucks for everybody else, and presumably they don't want that either. Well, my view on these kind of questions is, you know, what's the worst could happen? Well, we could get into a nuclear war, right? Like if, like, things got really bad, we could have, you know, the end of civilization, so we should avoid that. <laughs> it's sort of how a I... fairly non-controversial no, opinion. I, there. I know yes, it's... I right. That's sort of like my starting point. And so if we think that there's some risk, and I think Dan Dresner and some other wonk types think like, well, things could go really bad under Donald Trump, like war and terrible things could happen domestically and internationally. We should just try to live to see another day. And so I would be of the view that you want the president, you want the country to be prosperous and peaceful and because then you get to the next day. And to me, I think like ultimately that's sort of the easiest way to think about it. And, you know, it would be nice to, you know, for the wonks and technocrats, it would be nice that like obviously they do believe in the value of expertise and you don't want that invalidated. But still, I would rather, you know, we could fight about that in five years or nine years or we have plenty of time to relitigate that debate, but we won't have that if we have nuclear war. So that's kind of how I would see it. It's also the case that there's no such thing as a presidency with an unmixed record, you know? And also, I I don't know that it's a problem for the next four years. We could look back in 10 years and see where the flaws were, even if things look great. I'll give you one quick example, and we will again stray on to like the economics turf again, which I don't think you and I can help ourselves when it (laughs) comes to that. But let's say that Trump gets some version of his fiscal package passed next year, right? So you get both infrastructure spending and you get a tax-cutting fiscal agenda also passed. All this stuff agreed with the congressional Republicans. Somehow they get around the filibuster or whatever other roadblocks the Democrats put up. You might get impressive growth for a few years, right? You might get really impressive growth and everybody will say, well, look at this. You know, everything's working out fantastically well. But here's something to think about. When you make the tax code more regressive, and I say that not as a judgment value. Yeah. I say that just in, just, in descriptive just terms. It's, it's more regressive, right? You're not just boosting growth for a little while if it does work, right? You're also making the people who depended on a progressive tax code more vulnerable in the next downturn, which may not start for a few years. Because a progressive tax code is also, in a way, a kind of automatic stabilizer, Because as incomes fall, of course, you pay a lower tax rate, which is necessary. So making the tax code more regressive might be coincident with strong growth and maybe even with lower income inequality for a few years just because the labor market is tight. But you don't see the mistake of it 
until five or 10 years down the line when you do get the downturn. And to me, that's what alleviates my own sense mm. of worry about what Dresner says, which is that you might not actually know what the problems were until True. 15 a, years later. Well, you know, speaking of fiscal stimulus, and this is a little different, which is that you've had sort of more wonky, technocratic, more left of center economists have been banging the drum for a long time. Fiscal stimulus, fiscal stimulus. You can't do it all monetary spend, infrastructure, direct transfers to people. And now the unemployment rate's 4.6%. And it's like, well, do we really need all this fiscal stimulus? And maybe now is not the time to do it. I kind of think that's a mistake. I kind of think that the people who have been calling for fiscal stimulus shouldn't let up, even if we're at a better point in the cycle, in part because even if it's not the ideal time for it, A, there's still a lot of private sector debt. So just the government spending more money to alleviate private sector debt might be just sort of like a good long-term thing. But also, even if even if it's purely sort of data-based, that it's like, oh, you know, we're not at this point in the cycle, that people should really try to avoid giving off the impression that it was for political reasons. They were calling for more spending and that as soon as a Republican comes in, they suddenly are like, well, you know, 4.6%, we don't need fiscal stimulus. So I sort of think that the better long-term tactical play here, just keep making all the same arguments for Britain. And, you know, it's like if bridges and airports uh, need to be fixed, fix it's them. It's a good investment. Yeah, no yeah. So I'm not too like, cycle. I mean, sure. you make yeah, a really that's good specifically point. specifically on the infrastructure yeah. part Yeah, of or this, even right. like this sort of like more transfers or whatever else. I say just keep pushing for it. You make a good point with the sort of how in the next downturn we might regret having made the uh, tax code more aggressive. If I were drawing up my uh, dream fiscal stimulus, it probably wouldn't have aggressive tax cuts for the rich or anyone. Yeah, tax rates. but what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Vote against it. Right. Yeah, that's a good but point. But I think if it's, if it's part of a whole package of fiscal stimulus, I say let's do it. Yeah, but what the part of your answer that I liked uh, was the idea that these guys should avoid even the appearance of changing their minds well, just like, because of a partisan shift because it, it reminds me of how opinions have changed on free trade, yeah, right? right? Where now Republicans are against right. it and Democrats are for it. And it's kind of like a battle of your own confirmation biases and who's right. going to win. Well, it's like, your preferred candidate versus your pre-existing views. It seems like the candidate wins. Well, as case. journalists, we have the luxury believing in things that aren't related to party. And so now I'm not saying journalists necessarily, we, we necessarily take a side, though I generally do think that I have been a fan of more fiscal stimulus over the years, and I've written about why that it probably makes sense. So I kind of think that it just sort of makes sense not to do a 180 now that there's a new president. Okay. Like, that would be a bad idea. One final topic sure. uh, related to Trump and language. Yeah. Um, there was an article by Jacob Levy of the Niskanen Center talking about post-truth politics and post-truth language. And something he said was that it is a classic tactic, a classic practice of authoritarian regimes to lie about something not necessarily because he expects to change a lot of minds and not necessarily because he expects people to believe the lie, but in order to get subordinates and surrogates to repeat the lie or at least to refrain from admitting that it was a lie because they have some other agenda, that it makes a display of power. Yeah over those same subordinates. And it 
brought to mind Trump's recent point that uh, there were a lot of illegal voters in California. That's complete nonsense. He almost certainly knows that there were complete nonsense that he lost the popular vote because, in fact, more people voted for Hillary Clinton. But he put it out there anyway. And I and a lot of other people were infuriated, for instance, that Paul Ryan couldn't just come out and say that was nonsense. Instead, he said something more akin to, I don't care about that. I'm focused on the other parts of my agenda. But it fits into this idea that it was a power play. But here's where it gets a little bit confusing for me, right? With Trump, because so much of it is a show like this, right? It is a display. It is an attempt at persuasion. A lot of these attempts share in common some of the traditional tactics, some of the extreme tactics of language uh, and of persuasion that you do see in authoritarian regimes historically. And it's really hard to know because Trump is such an unpredictable and such an unexpected and peculiar figure, frankly. It's hard to know whether or not He's starting us down that path towards something more aggressive or if it's just something that he deploys now and again to get his wishes because more concretely, he has, for instance, threatened to prosecute Hillary Clinton, though he now seems to be backing away from that. He has threatened to, quote, open up the libel laws for journalists, right? He's now threatening or at least attacking verbally individual companies on Twitter I don't know where it leads, but I'm worried about it, and I'm curious to know what you think about all this. I think what you say is really sort of the key thing. Trump is a really unusual politician, just sort of objectively, and I think part of the fascination with Trump and why the media devoted so much time and gave him so much airtime and basically made the entire last two years or last year and a half the Trump show on TV was because there is this question that's out there, which is that – Is he the most brilliant politician we've seen in years who's just sort of like hacked the entire system, understand, you know, the whole three-dimensional chess thing that people talk about, like just totally gets it on another level? Or is he uh, just sort of like a guy who fluked into the nomination because there were 17 candidates on the Republican side and the guy who lost to Hillary Clinton by 2 million votes? And the analogy that I use to think about this is uh, poker because – Within any given discrete unit of poker, whether it's a single hand, a single night with your friends, or even like a World Series of poker, you can't look at the situation from the outside and say, oh, this guy's a good poker player because you can just have like a fluke. And in fact, poker played at its very highest levels often resembles poker played at its very worst levels. You have some guy who's like sort of seems to be bluffing like crazy, complete maniac, can often look like the person who has sat down at the poker table for the very first time ever. And so there's no independent way in one running of the instance, whether it's a hand or a tournament, to determine whether someone is the worst they've ever seen or the best they've ever seen. And I think that's what's going on with Trump. The entire world is trying to figure out, is he the most calculating, brilliant poker player they've ever seen? Or is he the guy who puts on sunglasses at the casino and thinks he's, you know, a tough guy and starts bluffing like crazy? And we can't know the answer in a single run. And I think this is the uh, enigma. I don't know the answer. Now, I, I hadn't thought of that before. And I love this idea in part because if you think about it, seasoned politicians, really good politicians, yeah. almost certainly would rather play 
with another seasoned politician yeah. that they know isn't quite as good as they are. That's exactly right? right. They'd rather take that chance because they know they can beat them on the same playing field. Whereas if you're playing against the single worst guy, yeah. you don't really know what you're dealing with. Right. You can't read them. There's There doesn't seem to be any consistency or patterns. It takes a long time. I think, like, really, this is the puzzle of this moment. That are we dealing with the most brilliant politician or the worst politician? And I don't think, even with his victory, the question has been answered. Joe's article is titled, Donald Trump, the first president of our post-literate age. You can get it at Bloomberg, but Joe... Uh, before I let you go, um, what is your long-form recommendation for our listeners? I've been on like a really big like sort of like financial history kick and all, or actually just sort of like rereading the books about the financial crisis that I like forgot to read at the time. <laughs> so I recently read The Devil's Derivatives by Nick Dunbar, all about sort of, you know, CDOs and civs and all that stuff. Came out like 2011. And now I feel like I understand the financial crisis better than I ever did. So... I don't know why I've been on this kick reading books about that, but uh, it's a fantastic book. Joe Weisenthal, thanks so much for being here, man. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for today. Before we go, I'll leave you with a long-form recommendation of my own. It's a book of essays by Albert O. Hirschman called The Essential Hirschman, simply enough. Uh, Hirschman was one of the 20th century's cleverest economists, uh, but more than that, he was also a counterintuitive thinker with a really deep grounding in the classics. It is almost impossible to read a paragraph by him and not learn something new. Uh, and if you want a specific place to start, go straight to the back to an essay called Exit Voice in the State. It's a follow-up to his best-known book, Exit Voice and Loyalty. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. For our overseas listeners, that is country code plus one. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. And please find us on iTunes and leave a review. It really does help people find us. And then finally, go to ft.com forward slash alpha chat for show notes and lots of other things, including links to everything we cited today. I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. And you know what? You might not have believed anything you heard today, but what I'm about to tell you will change your mind because Amy Keene is the amazing producer and editor of this podcast. And she is quite simply an invincible bulwark against life's corrupting influences. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryan, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.